The Chattanooga family of shockwave therapy devices bring deep tissue treatments in less time with less effort and greater patient comfort. Built around proven penetrating acoustic wave technology, Chattanooga offers treatment solutions that can reach up to 12.5 centimeters below the skin, making even the deepest causes of pain treatable and resolvable. Whether you're a growing clinic needing a versatile solution or a large sports medicine center that demands the best in recovery, Chattanooga has a therapy solution to get your patients moving. Learn more at djoglobal.com slash shockwave therapy. Clinical studies and device indications available upon request. Individual results may vary. Neither DJO LLC nor any of its subsidiaries dispense medical advice. Consult your healthcare professional for advice. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. In his clinical work as a physiotherapist, in his research work, and in his advocacy work, Dr. Sarab Sharma is absolutely committed to developing and implementing better ways to help patients who live with chronic pain to manage their pain and to live their best lives. Sarab knows firsthand the challenges and the opportunities of working across different cultures and in different resource settings from Nepal to New Zealand and now in Australia. And he brings that knowledge and experience to today's podcast as we dive into pain neuroscience education. Sarab, welcome to JOSPT Insights and thanks for making the time to join me today. Thank you for inviting Claire. It's a pleasure to have you join us on the podcast and today we're talking about how clinicians and people living with pain can talk about and understand pain and I've noticed that it seems that we have a bit of a love-hate relationship with pain neuroscience education. Can you explain a little bit about where do you see neuroscience education fitting into quality musculoskeletal care? Having researched pain neuroscience education and also using it in clinic for a few years back home in Nepal, I know that it can work really well for some patients and it uh, may not work at all for the other. So I think the key is to understanding when it is useful and when it is not and not trying to impose PNE to all patients who work in our clinical door. So I think PNE has a place, but it's not for everybody. So it was originally designed to reduce fear and worries, and I think it does kind of good job in reducing fear and worries, but it may not really reduce pain for all people with pain-related problems. Education works for uh proportion of patients who are really willing to learn. So one way to find that out is by asking people if they really want to learn about pain. If the answer is yes, I think the person might benefit to some extent by pain neuroscience education. And the other way is also by learning from patients themselves. Many of the times I hear from the patients that they ask me what the cause of their pain is and what why it really hurts. So in that case, I think that would be the patient that I would generally talk about pain neuroscience education with them. Yeah, and I love that you bring in the idea of learning from the patient and this process as a two-way process of exploring and understanding together. And Gilletta Belton, who is a pain patient advocate, talks a lot about 
how important it is for education to be a two-way process. So I'm interested in your thoughts, Sarab. I totally agree with Joe. Education is not something that's unidirectional and it's bidirectional. And patient will never, uh, that may be a strong statement, but I do agree that patient will never learn from us if we do not hear their perspectives and do not want to learn about their problems and hear their views and story. So it's really important for us to understand their perspective, be empathetic to what they say and reiterate what they have to say to us so that patients know that we understand their problem and we are going to address their problem and not imposing our knowledge and skills on them. How do you start pain neuroscience education or Let's let's go to the acronym PNE for the rest of the podcast. I think we can do that, and our audience are clever and they know what we're talking about. When does PNE start? Is it at the first consultation, the first time that you start to work with patients, or or can it come in later? It really depends on who the patient is. So, if during the clinical encounter we learn from patient that they are really worried about their pain and they want to learn about their pain problems. I think the first encounter in general is the session to start PNE. But for some patients, they may not really acknowledge the need of understanding about the pain in the later sessions. In that case, it's uh, no use of imposing PNE or any form of education on them in the first session. So I think uh, we have to go on with the flow. And what do you see as the key components of a good? P&E approach, Sarab, what sorts of topics and how would you start to think about putting a package together? I think the first and best way to start is by building good relationship with our patients and building therapeutic alliance. Once that's done, understanding what are the deficits in the patient's knowledge and framing the learning objectives like we do when we, we, when we teach our students. So that is the key place to start. So learning uh, the learning needs of patient and then formulating target concepts. That's what Lorimer Mosley and David Butler would like to say. From my experience of providing PNE uh, in Nepal, I have kind of figured out that there are five key concepts that many people would benefit from. So I would use some of them or all of them based on what the uh, patient needs. So I'll give you some of the examples. Please do. We love examples. Uh, So telling people that pain is quite common and many people experience it, uh, that really helps people to know that they are not only one who is suffering or experiencing pain. And there are many people who have similar problem and going on with their life really helps them. So one target concept would be saying something like pain is common and talk about some statistics in a really simple and easy uh, way. Also teaching about how pain is protective and how it can act as a friend in the initial injury and then how it can be overprotective in long run. Uh, that really helps patients relate uh, to their pain and why there is the ongoing episodes of pain. So that's another thing that's really important. And in more recent past, I've identified that many people undergo, undergo imaging such as x-rays and MRI and almost everyone in urban areas in our country undergo MRI. So they are really worried about uh, the disc bulge and slips and 
nerve impingement and they think that their pain is only because of that and nothing around in their body thoughts or in society influencing their pain. So I think making them aware of the overall biopsychosocial model of pain and stuff outside the disc and outside spine can influence pain can be really powerful for many patients to learn. And pain is not an indicator of tissue damage. Uh, it can occur without any tissue damage. And I won't just say these statements, but I draw these from the examples from their own lives. So that helps them understand and relate to their problem. So I think these are some of the examples of the educational concepts that I deliver. And I generally derive, derive that from patients' own perspectives. Let me just recap those points because I think they were really helpful points, Sarab. And I want to make sure that I was listening and that I got them, I got them right. So the first thing that you talked about was this idea that pain happens to many people. You're not alone. Yeah, just saying that pain is common and you're not alone is really powerful for many people. Kind of that reassuring at the first stage. Then you started talking a lot more about the biopsychosocial approach and bringing in different elements of the person's life and talking about how pain has, or our experience of pain has different components. Some of it might be biological from the tissue. Some of it might be psychological and some of it might be related to social factors. Then I think that that really important message that pain doesn't always equal tissue damage and that it's possible to have pain in the absence of tissue damage. I suspect that that's a really, it can be for many people, a a difficult thing to overcome or a difficult thing to understand. So perhaps we could come back to that point in a moment and just talk through a little bit about how you have that conversation with people. The final sort of overarching important message that I picked up was this idea of always linking back to the person's context and their own beliefs and experiences and knowledge. So how did, how did I go? That's spot on, Claire. So let me pick up on the pain doesn't always equal tissue damage. What sorts of suggestions would you share with our, the folks listening to us today with how to have that conversation with someone, particularly for whom the belief of, of pain is damage is really strong for them? This particular target key concept is the hardest to deliver. And over years, I've figured out that it is better to bring uh, the examples of such situations from patients themselves than to impose our wisdom on them. So the way I start uh, delivering this particular target key concept is by asking patient whether in their life or in someone whom they know, they have ever had an experience of tissue injury but never had pain. So I'd ask them and they would bring up some examples and they and then I would again ask whether they had an example of not having a tissue injury and having a severe pain. So almost always they come with it with come up with an example or their family members help them come up with the example. So based on their example, I tell them that uh, so tissue damage does not really indicate pain. So these are different constructs. So that really helps them understand. It's generally because of their examples that they share. And when they don't have any examples to share themselves, which is very rare, 
I share some of the examples from my story bank that I've developed over the years. Yeah, and again, coming back to the the person's own experiences, I think that message is really coming through in lots of different contexts, the power of, of engaging and connecting with the individual. How is the kind of pain neuroscience education that you deliver in the research work that you do in New Zealand, and you're also doing some work in Australia too, and we'll get to that shortly, but how is the work, that sort of work different to the kind of PE that you would have delivered when you were back home in Kathmandu in Nepal? I'm involved in clinical trials that involve intensive educational program uh, in Australia. And I've also worked very closely with people who have delivered pain neuroscience education in clinics in Australia and New Zealand and also have run large clinical trials on PNE. So based on my understanding of reading and talking with colleagues and my own work in Nepal, I think that people in the more developed countries are used to learning about uh, different stuff, including their disease from different sources, including including their doctors, healthcare providers, and over internet. But in our context, this is still not the case. So many people are not educated. So every three in 10 people can't read or write. And many who do, don't continue to read and write once they start family. So I think that's the biggest difference. So we need to really be very simple and use lay terms and avoid all the jargons. For my pain neuroscience education study in Nepal, I did not really use the term neuroscience or biology or any of the complicated stuff because that would scare my patients. So I kept it simple. I talked to them about pain education or just patient education. So that would invite my participants to engage in the conversation rather than being scared and uh, being apprehensive of the overall discussion. In Western countries, many patients are comfortable using apps or some web-based platform for education and including PowerPoints. But in our context, I noticed that people are really frightened of PowerPoints and uh, overly complicated stuff. So in my education for PNE in Nepal, I used postcards, which generally work really well because they are used to seeing photos or pictures holding that in hands. So they would engage with the photograph and then hold and then chat with their family members. So I found that really helpful. That's great. And you've got me thinking about, and this is going to resonate for people who do teaching as well, that we, I think we all can recognize either in when we're teaching or as when we're learners ourselves, that different people take in different information in different ways and like to learn in different ways. And, and this is not going to be any different when we are working in the clinic with patients. So how do you go about tailoring the information or using different multimedia approaches to try to reach people in a way that resonates for them? Yeah, my approach is to use as many ways as possible to communicate my key messages to my patients. So I would use photographs or stories or metaphors or stories from uh, patients themselves. And I would also spend a lot of time checking uh, whether they understood things correctly or not. So that's uh, something that's really important. And I really liked your analogy of teaching our students and teaching uh, patients 
isn't different. In fact, it's even more uh, difficult. So best to be as simple and as clear as possible and trying to limit the messages to minimum. But the ones that are poor to patients' knowledge deficit is integral, I think. Absolutely. I, you've got me thinking about resources as well and this the, the power of storytelling. One of the resources I really like is the Beyond Pain podcast that's produced by Bodylogic Physiotherapy, our friends Kevin Wernley, JP Canero and Pete O'Sullivan in Perth in Western Australia. And their approach to podcasting is to very much draw on patient stories. They have lots of patients who join them on the podcast and share stories. And and I think, you know, that uh, that idea of I'm not alone, I can hear a story from somebody else that resonates with me is a is a powerful thing. So that's got me thinking about resources. Sarab, what resources would you recommend people check out to help them better understand, either understand their own pain or help explain pain when they're talking about pain with patients? Yeah, well, I really liked when you talked about Peter Sullivan's uh, podcast. When you said that, I it reminded me of Pain Revolution website where very recently, I directed one of my cousins who had severe back pain for about six months. And when he listened to other people's stories about pain, he could really connect. So I think uh, other than Peter's podcast, Pain Revolution is a useful resource. And I really like International Association for Study of Pain website, which has wonderful resources for clinicians. And some of them also translate well to patients as well. It has facts, sheets, and Pain Research Forum webinars, which are uh, really good resources for a clinician. I've read and liked Explain Pain books, including the uh, small protectometer handbook, which is really nice resource for patients and also for clinicians. And there are several YouTube videos that's available. And Lauren Heathcote had recently conducted a systematic review to assess quality of videos on YouTube. It's really helpful, I think, to build up that bank of resources, as you allude to, because there's a ton of good information out there. It can be time consuming to find it. And, and I think to have that sort of bank at, at your fingertips to then go, okay, I've, I'm working with someone who really likes to listen to stories. So now I've got a couple of podcasts that I can share, or I've got someone who really likes to have something written so that they can read it and then, you know, take it home and read it again or share it with their family members. So I think that multimedia approach is helpful in that it gives you different options to share with people who like to learn in different ways. And as you say, different messages and um, just different ways of communicating is is helpful to have a bank and to feel that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time you're trying to do P&E. Exactly. And the other important resource would be to develop our own storybook or story bank. So that way, we might use our previous patient's story in order to help future patients. And that could also go as podcast or could be archived in a website or that would also be really useful 
Yes, definitely. And I'd encourage folks to connect with us on social media. You can tweet us at JOSPT or connect with us on Facebook. We're JOSPT official. We are also JOSPT official on Instagram. Use the hashtags yourJOSPT or JOSPT insights with an S on the end and share the resources that you really love to use that you find helpful and that you find resonate with the patients that you work with. Now, Sarab, we're coming to the end of the podcast and I would really love to learn a little bit more about the research, the new research that you're diving into after completing your PhD last year and and big congratulations. You've joined the Centre for Pain Impact at Neuroscience Research Australia. Can you share a little bit about what's on your research agenda in the coming few years with Neura? Yeah, certainly, Claire. So the primary goal of my research in the in the uh, next few years is to develop and test interventions to treat complex pain conditions. So these include complex regional pain syndrome or CRPS, low back pain, and osteoarthritis. And I've also been working with international colleagues on developing global strat- strategies to improve musculoskeletal health. And I'm also looking at different interventions that work best for low back pain, along with my colleagues at Neura. And finally, I also plan to continue my work on developing ways to improve pain care in low and middle income countries. A busy agenda, and I wouldn't expect anything less of you, Sarab. Thank you so much for making the time to join me on JOSPT Insights today and share all of your knowledge and experience with pain neuroscience education. It's been a pleasure. It's a true pleasure on my part as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.